Uh, as you know, we're studying out of Genesis, um, and we're taking a look at the world that then was. And the story we're going to read this morning is uh, it's really heavy, and it talks about a very heinous act that uh, one brother commits against another. So I'm going to read this passage for us, and then uh, hopefully we're going to come away with a better understanding of how God is at work, even in the darkest of things. So if you're able, if I could ask you to stand with me as I read God's Word, that's out of respect for God, who's the speaker. I'm merely reading the scriptures for us. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will it not, will it not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire for you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this day that you've set aside for us to be with you. And, and thank you for your word, as heavy as it can be at times. As we approach this story, Lord, it's uh, disturbing in ways that... Um, we can find hard to understand, and yet you have it here because you're telling us a story not only of, of how sin works in our hearts and in the world, but more importantly about how you work um, in spite of that and how you're so much greater than the darkness of our hearts. And so we pray that that would be the guiding theme of our meditation this morning, and we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how much you love us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I have a birthday coming up next month, and I'm starting to feel my age these days. And as I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about uh, my experience of um, of being a young man when the September 11th terrorist attacks happened at the Twin Towers in New York. And um, some of you here may be young enough that it's more of a historical uh, footnote or something that you read about and watch footage of. Uh, for me, I happened to be home that morning and I watched it all happen live. 
And so when I got up, I came out of the room and I was speaking with uh, my father and he said, look, there's a terrorist attack. And it was unthinkable. Uh, before that, the only attack of that type was Pearl Harbor, really, uh, of that scale. And as I watched the TV, they were showing live footage and you could see the planes coming in across New York and crash right into both towers. And it was horrifying to watch. Uh, and as the news footage continued on through the morning, a couple hours later, uh, we were watching it, and it was so disturbing to think about what was happening, but that wasn't even the worst part. If you're familiar with those attacks, my father and I remember, clear as day, we were standing in the living room watching the TV, and suddenly, because all, all the fire and the heat and the iron that was melting and the destruction that was just piling on the top of the towers, first one collapsed in on itself. And we watched live as the second tower collapsed in on itself. And we literally watched on live TV thousands of people losing their lives. It, my heart sank to the pit of my stomach. It was one of the most disturbing things I've ever witnessed. And if you're any kind of a student of history, you know that that wasn't even the end of it. That led to our invasion of two different countries. This isn't a political commentary. This is just an analogy that we're thinking about here. And that led to the loss of thousands of more lives. Two wars that span the better part of two decades. Incredible loss of life, destruction, displacement of millions of people. The point is, is in that one act of evil, it spread like wildfire across the entire globe. This story between Cain and Abel is not unlike that. Uh, what we see here is that the sin that was planted in Adam's heart in the garden, outside of the garden begins to spread through the wickedness of fallen humanity and cause massive destruction wherever it goes. Outside of the garden, under the deepening influence of sin, uh, fallen humanity is capable of unspeakable horrors. And unfortunately, we all live in the real world and we know that intuitively, we know that instinctively. We see that all around us. Uh, and it affects humanity to this day. And unfortunately, in some ways, it will affect fallen humanity until the day the Lord returns. Despite that, though, even in this tragic story, what we're going to see is God is always at work. I had a pastor share with me once. We were talking about a horrific, a horrific event that we were co-counseling on. He said, yeah, despite all this, I know that God's at work and he's up to something good. And Genesis 4 still tells us that. And we're going to consider that today. We, we're going to see that even in spite of what happens between these two brothers, God is at work keeping his plan of redemption intact. Uh, showing that his mercy is greater than the darkness of the world that we live in and the darkness that we find in our hearts. And that's our main idea, that uh, left to our own devices, ultimately our sin will always destroy us and it'll destroy other people. But God's mercy is always greater than our sin. So we're going to consider that by looking at three different aspects of this account. Uh, first, we'll take a look at the conflicts in our hearts. That's always present. Second, we'll look at the consequences of sin. And then third, in light of all that, we'll look at God's response to us in Christ. Uh, so first, uh, the conflict of our hearts. <clears throat> it's helpful to take a step back and think about some of the things that Rob's been talking about as a framework for this story. Uh, the context is really important here. Adam and Eve have had children. And, you know, we talked about in Genesis 3 how Jesus, or God made this promise that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus that there would be a promised seed that would come through Eve's children and that he would be the Savior 
uh, here we see them starting that. They're having children, and so it would be very natural for them to wonder, I wonder if this is the promised seed that God has told us about. Uh, we see a lot of firsts in this account in Genesis 4. We see the first picture of life outside of Eden. Uh, we see the first family living life together. Uh, we see the first picture of worship outside of Eden, which is what all this conflict really centers around. Uh, we see the first murder in the, the killing of Abel. Uh, we also see the first martyr. You know, and Scripture tells us that really Abel is the first martyr. He's killed for worshiping God. And to be clear, this, this isn't just a family fight, right? I mean, we've all, we all got our family stuff. I mean, I, maybe I'm the only one that comes from a family that's jacked up in its own ways. I mean, has anybody else got some dysfunction here? Or, okay. Everybody knows about family fights, right? Some of you probably had them this morning. I mean, Janie and I almost kicked off one before we got here for service, but the Lord prevailed against us. Uh, really, what we're seeing here on a, on a larger scale is a battle of two kingdoms continuing. Uh, remember, God made man and he made him to rule, to rule in God's kingdom, to oversee the garden, to act as a guard and a priest and a king. And his, his job was to care for the garden and to expel the serpent, to defeat him, and he failed in that. But even despite that, we see God keeping his promises to sustain, sustain man. Uh, we see him giving a, a way to exist outside of the garden, a way to uh, continue the propagation of humanity. We see him giving him this wonderful way of continuing worship of God, even though he's outside of the garden now. We see that in Abel and Cain. Conversely, we also see the kingdom of Satan at work here. And the way that we see the kingdom of Satan growing and working is through the hearts of fallen humanity. Cain gives us an unfortunate example of that. And so we see a continuation of this cosmic battle that's unfolding uh, outside of Eden between those that belong to the serpent and those that belong to God. Um, and what I want you to remember through this whole story is that one of the biggest strongholds that Satan has is in the heart of fallen man. It's where he does his greatest uh, evil. And that is revealed in who and what people worship every time. And so the first part of that is to consider the worship. In the first five verses, it drops right in with a summary narrative of Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices to God, which tells us that God gave them a way that he could approach them and worship, have communion with him, and continue their relationship with him. And you know, it's funny, when I was studying this, some scholars like to theorize about what the problem was with Cain's sacrifice versus Abel's. Uh, the text itself gives us a really important clue. It says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and he brought the fat portions of his livestock. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, all throughout that, God says to bring me your best and your first when you bring a sacrifice to me. And it was the same way that Abel does here. As for Cain, it simply says that Cain just brought the fruit of that was on the ground. And that's a telling omission. Uh, you see, what you and I worship and what Cain worshiped was revealed in how we went about that worship before God. Really, though, there's no big mystery with what the problem was. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us point blank in, in Hebrews 11.4, he says, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now think about that in comparison to what Cain brought. 
Cain essentially thought he could bring whatever he wanted. He wasn't concerned with pleasing God because he was pleased with what he decided to bring. And so if you could picture it in your mind, Cain was probably like, what do I got? I got some rotten avocados here. I got some leeks. There's dirt on it. Who cares? Look, here's some cantaloupe. I don't like cantaloupe, but here, maybe God likes it. And he brought it to God, right? Janie, Janie knows I like cantaloupe. That's not true for me, but... Uh, Cain's heart convinced him that what was good enough for him should be good enough for God. But that's really not the heart of the issue for him. The heart of the issue was that that sacrifice revealed a heart that Cain possessed that was concerned with pleasing himself. Uh, You know, the very center of biblical worship, the very center of biblical faith, uh, always centers around a right worship of God, ascribing him our very best because we see and understand his infinite value and worth, his glory, to put it shortly. Uh, and a sinful heart, you know, sinners are never born in the world worshiping God, right? A sinner is never brought into this world and just, hey, I'm going to worship God. A sinful heart always focuses on worshiping the created things. We see that in Romans 1. But what a sinful heart worships more than anything else is itself. It's the most important thing. So when God rejected Cain's sacrifice, it wasn't just that he didn't like what he brought. In Cain's heart, what he felt was that God rejected him. And he couldn't stand it. He couldn't take it. He was swallowed up by the sin that dwelled in his heart, and he went through that roller coaster of emotion that we've all experienced when sin trips us up. It probably started with feeling embarrassed and then feeling ashamed. And that shame probably settled into dejection. I guess God doesn't love me, but gosh, he sure loves my brother. And that dejection turned into disappointment. His disappointment probably turned into jealousy as he watched his brother worshiping God. And that jealousy probably turned into anger. And that anger probably festered into resentment. And that unchecked resentment turned into rage. And he couldn't stand the thought of it being his fault. And so he directed his rage at God and his brother. Now, whatever Cain was, clearly he wasn't a complete fool because he knew he couldn't direct that rage at God directly. He couldn't take it out on him. And so he decided to take it out on his brother. Verse 8 says that Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, he rose up and he killed him. You know, it makes me wonder what he said to his brother. There's probably something along the lines of, you know what, if you weren't such a showboat, God wouldn't be upset with me. If you didn't have to be a one-upper, I wouldn't be in this position. Why'd you have to bring your best? What's wrong with what I brought? And in that moment, that rage took Cain over. And you see the end result. Even after he commits this atrocious act, it turns into cynicism and bitterness. When God confronts him in verse 9, what is Cain's response? He says, am I my brother's keeper? You know, the Message Bible gives this really neat translation. I don't honestly know how accurate it is, but I really enjoyed it. It says, am I my brother's babysitter? Just picture the cynicism of Cain towards God himself. 
What am I, his babysitter, man? You made him. I don't know where he's at. You know, Rob gave this wonderful anatomy of evil. Uh, and here, God speaks to that again in verse 7 when he's confronting Cain and warning him. He says, sin is crouching at the door. And the translation speaks about something along the lines of a predatorial animal laying in wait to ambush somebody who is surely going to be a victim. See, Cain was so blind, he didn't even realize how close he was to destruction. When we let evil rule our hearts, we become convinced that we're okay, even in the midst of danger. And we also become convinced that we can rule ourselves in a way that pleases us. We create our own kingdom, and we make our own rules. And that even drives us to the point where we can become convinced and justify ourselves that we can rule over somebody else's very life. A lot of you guys know my story. I grew up uh, as a, a petty criminal and a drug addict. And when I was a young guy, there was a group of guys that I ran around with. And we were just gearing up, uh, doing what we do. I was about 14 years old. And there was an older guy that we ran with named Jim. And uh, Jim, Jim was, uh, I think he was 17, 17 and a half at the time. And we were doing what people do in that lifestyle out on the streets. But it wasn't anything too serious. And Jim was the nicest guy in the world. He's one of those guys. Literally, he was the guy who would give his shirt off his back. I remember once I had to get home so I wouldn't get in trouble. You know, I was a younger kid. He gave me his bike so I could get home on time and not get grounded. I tried to give it back to him a couple days later. He said, no, keep it, man. It's fine. That way you won't find yourself in that jam again. Just the coolest kid. Uh, but Jim got caught up with some older guys who were taking things to a next level, and they, they decided that they were going to uh, rob a drug dealer, and things went south. And in, in the flip of a switch, uh, a fight that broke out between them ended in a murder, and they murdered this young man. And I won't go into the details, but it, it was a violent, atrocious murder. And eventually they tried to dispose of the body. And Jim was caught, and he was brought to trial. And he was literally one of those guys that every single person, even the victim's family, said, I never would have imagined that Jim could do this. But he spent his life in prison because he murdered another human being. Nicest guy in the world. It's hard to imagine, but you and I have a lot more Cain in us than we'd like to admit. When we become disillusioned with God because our sins let us down and we become resentful at God and other people, uh, we become so susceptible to allowing sin to drag us into the very depths of destruction. The unfortunate truth is, is that there's not one human being in this room who knows what they're truly capable of. You and I have no idea what we're capable of doing outside of God's intervention. Cain is the ultimate example of that. Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against God. Boy, that cut me to the heart. That cut me to the heart. And see, that's one of the biggest tragedies of this story is that in being ruled by evil, uh, the sin in Cain's heart robbed him of being able to see and experience God's grace. That's the second point, experiencing the consequences of our sin. 
uh, you know, it's a spiritual truth. It's just a, a spiritual axiom that when we fall into sin and it rules over us, it robs us of every good thing that God gives us. It robs us of every good thing that God gives us. And in this story, that's certainly true for Cain. He loses everything that he possessed of meaning and significance. Uh, he loses his vocation in life. He's no longer able to work the ground and make a living and uh, eat of the food or the ground. He's alienated from his family. He's separated from his family who loved him. Uh, he's cut off from his entire community. He can no longer be with that community outside of the garden worshiping God. He's a nomad. He has nowhere to go, no. God forces him to be a wanderer on the earth. Uh, he's driven away from the very presence of God. You know, you see that when he says, you have hid your face from me. And that's heartbreaking to think about because what his sin did was it robbed him of the intimacy of that relationship that God wanted for him in worship. I was talking with Janet a little bit about the sermon, and we don't have very much data in the New Testament about what happens to Cain, but I'll tell you it's not good. 1 John 3 says that he was of uh, the evil one. He belonged to Satan. I think perhaps the greatest tragedy in Cain's story was that he was unable to see God's grace being offered to him at every turn. Every twist and turn in this short story reveals God's grace in response to Cain's wickedness. Think about it with me. As the evil rages in Cain's heart, God engages him in conversation. He says, why are you angry when he knows the answer? He says, if you do well, will it not be accepted? Reminding him, there's a way that you can be reconciled with me. It's not as far off as you think. And engaging him, it draws out the, the sinful intents in Cain's heart. He's trying to draw his heart out for him. Uh, he warns him of the dangers that exist. He tells him, sin's crouching at the door. It's right there, and it's waiting to overtake you. And you must resist it. You must rule over it, meaning turn back to me. Even in the curse on Cain when he drives him away, God protects him from the threat of vengeance. He places a mark on him. Scholars don't exactly know what that mark is. He places a mark on Cain with judgment on any who take vengeance. And what we see here is one of my favorite parts of how God works. We see the seeds of something that scholars sometimes call uh, common grace. And we're going to see this kind of open up like a flower in the coming chapters. And essentially what that is is how God unfolds his mercy and works in in the fallen world and fallen humanity. And the way that he does that is he restrains the full effect and power of evil of running rampant in the world. And we see the seeds of that even in Cain's life. And he says, look, people won't be able to take vengeance on you. He does that for a couple of different reasons. In a general sense, he does it so all of humanity has a testimony either for them on their behalf when they come to faith or against them as a part of the judgment that God's grace is everywhere and it's always at work. And in a special way, it becomes a platform on which God brings the church and sustains it in a fallen and evil world by his common grace. That's a foundation that we exist on so we can do the work of sharing the gospel of God's grace in the fallen world. Uh, I saw a, a documentary um, some years back, um, and I came across it because I'm a big fan of U2, again, dating myself. But it's a documentary called Miss Sarajevo. 
and it's about the conflict between the Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims in the early 1990s. And it was a war that was waged around the capital city of Sarajevo for the better part of five years. And uh, the war got so bad that as military forces surrounded the city, what they decided to do is cut them off from any water, any food, any contact with the outside world, electricity, and nobody could, nobody could really tell what was going on inside. And then they decided to focus uh, all of their military efforts actually on the civilians in the city. And so year over year, they had snipers all throughout the city, and they were killing civilians who lived there. And so an American journalist went in and created a documentary with the help of uh, the members of U2, and he had uh, all this video footage that he put together for the documentary to try and get it out so people could actually see what was happening. And there's a scene in the documentary where he films this underground beauty pageant that they would have every year uh, called Miss Sarajevo. And in the middle of the footage, he shows this beauty pageant, and at the end of it, they pick who the winner is, and the winner comes forward. And instead of asking for world peace, as is commonly the place in beauty pageants, she steps up and calls the other contestants up with her, and she grabs a banner, and she unfolds the banner, and on the banner, it simply said, don't let them kill us. And he took all this footage and he sent it to U2 and they started playing it at their concerts where thousands and thousands of people would see it live. See people being killed, watching these women holding up this banner. Don't let them kill us. And it sent these shockwaves first into popular culture and then into the media. And it was one of the things that woke the world up from apathy about the atrocities that were happening. And they began to address it again. You see, God's grace is meant to operate in our lives in just the same way. Even in the worst sins that we fall into, it's meant to shock us awake from the spiritual apathy that we can fall into. It's one of His most severe mercies to you and I. In this story, while God's mercy towards the hard-hearted is on full display, as we've just been thinking about for a minute, uh, what the story shows us in an even more beautiful way is that God's mercy towards you and I in Christ is truly greater than our worst sins. And that's the third point, and that's God's response to us in Christ. You know, when we pick these passages, Rob's like, hey, you can pick your passages, here's the weeks, and I was like, oh, I want to do Genesis 4, and when I started studying, I was like, I might need to see a therapist after this. This is so dark and depressing, like, what was I thinking? But it's been so encouraging for me. It's been convicting and encouraging for me to look uh, at the reality of evil when it takes hold of my heart and our hearts and then compare it to how God responds in saving us from it. And at ground zero here, uh, this is a tragic story in, in many ways. Uh, it starts with the evil in one brother's heart. It ends in a murder that rips a family apart. Uh, it ends in Abel's death. It actually signals, when we're thinking about things on a cosmic spiritual level, it signals fallen humanity's spiral, greater spiral, into sin and destruction. It also signals God's direct judgment. We see that on Cain. It brings about a very severe judgment by God. But you know, it's not the end of Abel's story. 
And more importantly, it's not the whole story of Scripture. See, the larger story at work here in Genesis 4, from Genesis 1-1 to the very end of the Bible, the larger story at work is that God promises and always preserves His promised seed through the children of Adam and Eve, and through that comes a deliverer from the evil that rules this fallen world. And we're going to see that in the next several weeks. We're going to see that God preserves that line, that Adam and Eve have other children. And we can trace that line all the way through the Bible to Jesus into Revelation. And Jesus, that promised seed, will one day finally and completely destroy and do away with the kingdom of the serpent, that kingdom of evil that exists today. He does that through his life, through his death, through being murdered, shockingly, and most importantly, through his resurrection. Uh, Here in chapter 4, we see a tragic story about a conflict between brothers. Uh, But Scripture tells you and I a greater story about peace among brothers. The author of Hebrews touches on this repeatedly uh, in the epistle in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In speaking about Jesus as the founder of our salvation, he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, meaning God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Christ's suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, God sets us apart. That's what sanctifies means. Takes us from the kingdom of evil and puts us into his kingdom, into his very family. And in that act, we become siblings with Jesus. And he's proud to call you sister. He's proud to call you brother because you stand before God on the same footing that he does. You see, Jesus is unified with you and I in our humanity. He took on human flesh. Uh, He's united with us in our struggle against sin. He knows every temptation that we face. He's gone through it, and he's gone through all the temptations you and I could never even begin to wrap our minds around dealing with. In his divine nature, he's the only one that makes peace with God possible. He does that through his death and his resurrection. By the power of the Spirit, he raises himself from the dead. God raises him up from the dead, seats him in heaven on a, kingdomly, uh, on a heavenly throne, ruling over his kingdom, which he does right now. He brings you and I into the family of God. We're not latchkey kids. We're not kids hanging around the front door of God's house. He gives us a seat at the banquet table. We're a son and daughter, just in the same way that Jesus is. He unites you and I to God as our heavenly Father through His suffering, through His death, and through His resurrection. And you know, Jesus even redeems Abel's story. As I noted before, Hebrews 11.4 says that by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God. And it goes on to say, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, Abel speaks to you and I because he gives us an example of the type of faith that pleases God. 
But Jesus shows us what perfect faith looks like. A faith that endured to the very end. Even in facing death for the penalty of our sins, of the evil that lives in our hearts. Genesis 4 says that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. And you know, it cried out for judgment. In Hebrews 12, uh, talking about having been brought into the family, God, listen to this, especially at the end. The author writes, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Jesus' blood speaks as well, and you know what it says on your behalf? It says mercy. And you know how God responds? With forgiveness and grace and restoration, gladly accepting us as his children, despite the darkest darkness that dwells in our hearts. He overcomes all of that. See, Jesus' sacrifice, which was offered in perfect obedience and perfect faith, overcomes every obstacle that stands between you and I and our sins and God. And he brings us home. And God's glorified in us living out that faith through our acts of worship in everyday life. And that becomes the means by which God displays his grace to a fallen and sin-stricken world. As we read in the gospel passage, it says that we're God's workmanship. One of my favorite translations says that we are God's masterpiece. You're a masterpiece of his grace. Now, if you look at me first thing in the morning, boy, I have no masterpiece. But when God works through my weakness and frailty and he displays his grace and his offer of forgiveness for the worst of sins through my life, that really says something about God. We all have the opportunity to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us and convicts us. We thank you that even in, in the darkest aspects of seeing evil and wickedness in the world, uh, we see you at work. Father, we thank you that uh, there is no sin so great that you cannot overcome it. There's nothing that takes us hostage in our hearts, no evil desire, no stumbling. Uh, there's nothing that can stop you from saving us uh, from ourselves. We thank you that you show us that, not only in Genesis 4, but from all your scriptures, and that the promise that you've made to deliver us uh, through Christ uh, was sure from all eternity, was sure the day that you spoke it to man, and that it's sure this very morning for us, and that it will be sure for all eternity that stretches out before us. I pray that you would help us to remember that, Lord, that we will become people who are quick to forgive and quick to be gracious and quick to confess our sins and be free of them. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.